You're listening to teaching from Central Church in West Columbia, South Carolina. We hope that this message will help you experience Jesus in a new and exciting way. For more information, please visit us at centralnazarene.org. So uh, the question becomes, what time is it? And uh, people have been asking that question for about 2,000 years. A little, little, a little time to that, just let you register that. People have been asking that question about 2,000 years. The disciples asked that very question in, uh, in Matthew chapter uh, 24 and verse 3. Um, when is this going to happen and what's going to be the sign of it? When and what? When is it going to happen and how are we going to know it's going to take place? So before I could answer that question, I needed to ask some background questions or I need to deal with some background questions. Uh, questions, and I, I can't rehash the older stuff. I'm hoping that you kind of know that. But I do want to say that generally the, the uh, Wesleyan tradition follows, uh, it, when it comes to uh, end time stuff, we follow a, a reformed or Calvinistic kind of, of uh, understanding about that. And we need to understand that we are Wesleyan. There's nothing wrong, I mean, uh, our brothers, our, 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 our Calvinist brothers are our brothers, uh, and our Reformed brothers and sisters are our brothers and sisters. I want to say that again and again. I'm not casting any rocks. I'm not casting any dispersions. I'm only describing and explaining who we are and how we understand end-time things as a theological system. Uh, and as we understand that study of end-time things called eschatology, the study of end-time stuff. And... Uh, and, and there's a way that we understand the scriptures, and you need to know that. Now, you don't have to buy into it, but it's good that you know it, because it's not going to save you. Okay, it's not going to save you. What, what you understand and what you believe about end-time stuff is not going to save you, but it is part of, of teaching and part of being, um, uh, the Bible says, to study, uh, to show yourself approved so that you can rightly divide the word of truth. So if you're going to rightly divide the word of truth, you need to do some studying so that it, you may, uh, uh, so that you can do that. So, you, so um, I, I made reference to so much stuff, I, I'm trying to remember all that I've already said, and I have my notes in front of me, but everything seems so important. You know, it's like announcements. Everybody's announcement is the important announcement. I thought I'd just throw that out. So uh, we talked about, we spent some time talking about presuppositions, so I can't go back over all of that. And so I hope that you know that everybody processes and interprets the world through presuppositions and assumptions about things. You can't even make a decision, you can't have an opinion without a, 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 a prior thought about that that helps you inform your opinion on that. So whatever your opinion is, there's something behind that that shapes that opinion. It could be experience, something somebody said, something you were taught, something in the background that, that forms that belief or a doctrine or opinion in you. So uh, it's important that you know what those are. So what I'm trying to do today is help you understand what the presuppositions of a Wesleyan theology is when it comes to end time stuff. Now I haven't even got to the good stuff, the fun stuff that we all like to talk about. I'm just like uh, pulling weeds. You know, that's never the fun part. Looking at the flower garden and the hummingbirds are much more pleasant. Just seeing that. But somebody's got to get in there and till and, and sow and plant and weed in order to really have that good experience. Say amen, Francis. Amen. There we go. 
So, so that's what we're doing. We're, we're plowing ground. We're digging around. We're, we're, trying to, we're trying to dig into the soil, see what's there. And so it's important that you understand. You say, what in the world does this have to do with eschatology? Well, in order to, under, to, have a, to have a directed or a systematic way of understanding eschatology, this is important, especially if you, are, if you consider yourself as a part of the Wesleyan tradition. Now, I know when I say those very words, some of you go, what in the world is that? So, uh, so there's all kinds of denominations. You know, there's Baptists, there's Presbyterians, there's uh, the Catholic Church, there's the Eastern Orthodox Church on the eastern side of the planet, and uh, there's, there's uh, Nazarene churches, Wesleyan churches. All of these have what we call systematic theologies, which is a systematic way of laying out the study of God. So all of you are theologians. You all have a certain way of understanding God, and you ask that question. That's why you're here. You want to know about God and God's ways in the world and salvation and the order of salvation and the end of the world. So you have all those questions going on in your mind. So this is real important. I, I, I brought this up last week, but this is real important because, as I said a while ago, we generally, it's just because it's so heavy on TV and in the books that you buy in the bookstore, We've, we generally have bought into a reformed theological system about eschatology. Does that make holy bumps go up and down your skin? I just thought maybe it would. So we have generally bought into that, but that doesn't really fit into a Wesleyan grid. It can, and you're not going to go to hell, and you're not going to be uh, criticized for it. You're not going to be uh, demembered for it. You can believe whatever you want. The Church of Nazarene has no position on any of the eschatological, everybody say eschatological. I know that would just bless your heart. Uh, themes. We just don't have a position on it. Because it's like my, my, old, my New Testament professor said when we studied uh, in seminary that he is a pan-millennialist. Not pantheism, but a pan-millennialist. And you all know what that is. That means everything will pan out just as God intended. Write that down. You can't go wrong with that. It will pan out just like God intended it to do. But to understand it from a Wesleyan point of view, it's important to understand this. Because there's reasons why we think what we think. So last week, last week I talked about total depravity. And how that in the Reformed tradition, total depravity is in big, bold, capital letters. We are all totally depraved, and we would all say, Amen. We are. But in the Wesleyan tradition, we believe also and confess we are totally depraved, but we are in small caps totally depraved. And the reason that is the case is because of right here. So the entire created order fell. The world, the system, the, the planet, every human being, every creature when the curse came in Adam's disobedience, the entire created order fell, and the curse fell over it all. So our, our, our Reformed brothers and sisters see that, and they go, we're totally prayed. We look at that and say, we're totally prayed. But we don't fall to the same place. This is important. The reason we don't fall to the same place, our Reformed brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters, we're not throwing rocks, we're not casting aspersions, we're just describing they take the fall below the line of no return. To a total depravity, what that means is 
that you don't have a good thought, that you can't seek after God, that you can't as a pagan walk out under the skies and say, God, are you there? You, you'll never look after God. You, 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 you won't pray. You won't pr There's nothing in you that will pray. It's like you're totally devoid of God. So you have loss, and this is the deal. You, as, as, a, as a reformed, uh, in a reformed theological system, in the fall, the human race lost, completely lost, the image of God. And that's a big difference. That is the difference, actually, is that the image of God was lost, which is why you couldn't think a godly thought. That's why you wouldn't pray when you were a sinner. That's why, but see, you did pray when you were a sinner. You did. I mean, many, many times, I was like a, just as worse a sinner as I have ever been in my life. When I laid my head down on the bed at night, I thought about God. And I said, God, now I knew the truth had been preached to me, but I wasn't following, I wasn't converted, I wasn't renewed, but I would still pray. Because as Wesleyans, we believe the image of God was retained. It was, it was not lost. It was marred and scarred and distorted. So that, and I did this before, is that so, so when, we, when God first created us, he made us, uh, in, in straight communion and, and fellowship with him. But in the fall, then it became this. And we became about ourselves. But, but as Westerns, we believe we, we maintained the image of God within us. But it was marred and scarred and flawed. And redemption, salvation, is about having this restored. Back to right relationship with God. So now this will come into play a little bit later. I'll just leave it there. And the reason why, did I just holler right there? The reason why is, see, we all believe that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. There is no one with equal power. There is no yin and yang. It's God and God alone. It's just God. There is none beside him. There is not an opposing God. There are so-called gods, but they're not gods at all. They only pretend to be gods. There's only one God, and he is sovereign God. And in his sovereignty, not ours, in his sovereignty, moved by his love, he stepped in and kept us from falling to a totally, capital letter, depraved position. And we call that God's prevenient grace. The grace that goes before God moved by love, stepped in, and it is salvation is all of God. Because without him stepping in, we would have fallen in. We would have fallen. But he did step in. So his preventing, prevenient grace stepped in, moved by his love, and rescued us from falling into a totally depraved state, as in that we could not have any kind of communion. Uh, with him. Now it is a broken communion. It is not a, salvific, a salvation communion. But it is still an awareness that he put within us by his own choice. Not because we had any power of our own, but by his own choice. He left a stamp of himself upon us so that we would seek him out. Okay? Now, this is a whole year of, of college or seminary kind of teaching. And I'm trying to do it in 20 minutes. So I'm bound to overlook something, not say something. So just know that, okay? So, so as we interpret the scriptures, we look at the scriptures through a lens. You have to. When you look at the scripture or look at a textbook or watch the news, you look at it through a particular lens that is shaped by what you assume about life and the world. So 
to try to help you understand that, for instance, that's on a little bit of a slant. Can y'all see it at all? You probably can't, especially when it's not turned towards you. Okay, but can y'all see this? Okay, okay, so see now, every theological system believes in the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, and the love of God. But as, as our Reformed brothers and sisters, they highlight the sovereignty of God. The Catholics totally believe in the sovereignty of God, and Wesleyans believe in the sovereignty of God. But the Catholics, they emphasize the holiness of God. Even though we are a holiness tradition, our emphasis, the Wesleyan emphasis, is love. That's our emphasis. That's what holiness is all about. Holiness is not about the rigidity. We wouldn't make it. It's about love. It's the first and greatest commandment. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It was the love of God that stepped in from making us fall, or, not, or for keeping us from falling. It was the love of God that moved Christ to die for the world. It was the love of God that, that we're called to live out. Oh, no man, anything except straighten them out. Hello? I was hoping for an amen or two. It was a sarcastic amen. <laughs> oh, no, man, anything but to love one another. That's the commandment. A new command I give to you. Tell everybody how they're wrong. A new command I give to you. Love one another. And it's an agape love. It's a God kind of love. There is, and we sing about it. I've only known a love with condition. I'll only love you if you check off the boxes so I can love you. And whatever you do, don't tick me off, because that's pretty much the end of it. I only know the kind of love that's conditional. God's kind of love is not based on that. While we were yet sinners, reprobate, fallen, unrepentant, God, you would be lost without it. You would be utterly lost and helpless without it. But God, moved by his great love, stepped in and rescued us. And why? I can't tell you why, except that God's love is incomprehensible. It's, it's incomprehensible. Such love, such wondrous love, that God should love such a wonderful person such as I. How could he not love me? Look how awesome I am. That God should love a sinner such as I. How wonderful is love like this. Now you go and love like that. Let me step out of the way so y'all can run and shout. Here, I'll, I think I'm back far enough. I'm back far enough. So, so as Weston, see, we're moved. We, 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 this is us. Because we think that's who God is. In the whole salvation story, that's who God is. God is, yes. Now, is he holy? Of course he's holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Is God sovereign? Of course he is. There is none other. But love shapes who he is. He is love. Now, love is not God, and people try to justify what they do because they love it, like chocolate or cake. Or put chocolate in cake and put some ice cream on that all together. 
And they're just way over the top now. You've exceeded it. Okay. okay well, I just wanted to hammer that away at, because it has to do with how we process This will give me a chance to breathe. Okay, so, now, I got, moving right along. So I'm going to finish this sermon. If you need to go, just go, okay? i got to finish this. So, we're talking about when we look at the Scriptures and we interpret it. We have to interpret it. Now, as Wesleyans, we have what we call the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Okay, I'll wait till the holy bumps calm down. Everybody calm down. Okay, the, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. So there's a way that we interpret things. So we interpret them through reason, through faith, through history, and through tra tradition. All those things inform our mind to help us to understand something, particularly something in the Bible. See, the scriptures are not given to you privately. That's how cults build up. See, my, who, who bring us has to be judged by the church, through the word. No man has a private interpretation. If you have a private interpretation, you're weird. There is no private interpretation. If there is one, you're just off the planet a little bit. So our theology and our beliefs are judged by the church through the word and the Holy Spirit. That's why we have accountability. That's why every year I have to, well, every month I submit to the board, every year I have to submit to the denomination. And I have to give an account of who I am and what I have done and what I'm teaching. Because I'm accountable. I'm responsible to God, but I'm accountable to you. And God built that. He established his church, and, and, and the church, we hold each other accountable in love. Okay, so, so we interpret things. And, and how we do that is as Wesleyans, and that's called, as I blessed your heart last week, with this thing called hermeneutics. It's the, the science of, of interpreting something. We have a Wesleyan hermeneutics, and when we read the Bible, we read it through a Wesleyan lens. Now, it's good to know what the other lenses are. It's good to know what the Reformed lenses are. So when you're talking through a, to a Reformed person, you don't just get into an argument. You know from where they're coming. Or, or you talk to a Catholic brother or sister. You, you, you know their theology. You know what they believe. You don't have to get into an argument. You can just reasonably discuss something. Because you understand somewhat of their theology. So, as Wesleyans, we have a synergistic. I have to use these words. I don't have to use these words, but it's just easier. Okay, so, you know, you for, in your science book, is, that, is it hot in here or is it just me? I wonder about putting this sweater on. Okay, so, so, so in your science class, you remember, remember and I, I'm trying to think of a creature, and I, I don't think of one at this moment, but you'll think of one, because all of y'all made A's in science. These creatures that have symbiotic relationships. You remember that, remember that lesson? It's two creatures that, co that live together in a little community, and, and, and uh, I'll just have to make up something. So it's like the shrimp. The shrimp, now this is not true, I'm just making this up just for the sake of illustration. The shrimp goes out and finds little tiny rocks. Now, you don't do that. I'm just trying to make up something. And, 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 he, and he eats that rock and chews it all up, and the crumbs fall down all around him. But underneath him are these clams that need those really fine particles of sand that he has just 
you know, broken to small pieces, and the little clam uh, uh, sucks those in and, and turns them into pearls so you ladies can wear them. I just made that none of that happens. I'm just trying to create a scenario where creatures live together and then they mutually benefit. Now, it's important what I just said. They mutually benefit one another. That's a symbiotic relationship. Now, we, be, we believe that there is a, uh, not a symbiotic relationship, but, but a synergistic dynamic. Not a symbiotic relationship, although there is at some level that, because that's how God made it. A symbiotic relationship. So what we mean by that is, is that God in his sovereignty, moved by his love, made us creatures in his own image. That's what he did. He made us as creatures. I said to someone uh, some time ago, well, you know, you don't need to be arrogant or haughty or, or argumentative. You're just a creature. Well, they were insulted by that. I'm not a creature. Well, yeah, you are. You're dust. So, uh, so he made creatures, but he made creatures who could be in communion with him. So it is a, a um, what's the word I just used? Not symbiotic. Wow! I am astonished. A synergistic dynamic at, at work between God and us. Synergistic mean that God in his sovereignty, moved by love, made us so that we could live in such a way so that there is a real relationship with him and us. See, that almost should make you shout right there. I mean, that is so good. That's why David said, who is men that you are mindful of him or the son of man? God, God. I mean, you can't express a higher ideal than that, God. You, there's no higher concept. I mean, that is the ultimate of ultimate. There's no word greater than that. There's no concept. God, what, what, who are you that you would visit me? And yet, that's what we confess. That's what we teach. God visits with me and you and you and you. He has children. He has children. You and me. Adopted, for sure, but he chose us. He chose us. Okay. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I made reference to this last week. You see, in our reform, well, I'd have to turn that back around, but you got the picture in your mind. See, when, when we say that, because it's a, a uh, I said symbiotic so many times now, synergistic dynamic. Because we believe in a synergistic dynamic, see, we believe, we believe that God says, um, you have not chosen me, I have chosen you. But because we have a thought behind that expression, what we mean is, God chose you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, which includes all the yous of the whole world. So every you, he chose you. Our Reformed brothers and sisters would say, no, 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 no. He didn't choose everybody. Because if he did do that, because he's sovereign, everybody would be saved. So he didn't choose everybody because God is sovereign. So they really throw that concept over the fence. So, because logically, if, he, if, if whatever God wills becomes true, then people who are saved, God has willed them to be saved. It couldn't be otherwise. And I'll get to that, and maybe it'll explain it up just in a minute. Okay, so suck in some air. Now that I've Terry's brought that up. Now I'm self-conscious of it, but I know, that, I, know how you, I know what it's like sitting there in that seat. 
Turn around your neighbor and say, I'm breathing, I'm breathing, I'm still alive. I'm just trying to get you to move and get your brain to move on. Okay, so there's a synergistic dynamic at work in how we view the world and God's relationship to the world. So now, let me explain this. So our, our, our Calvinist brothers and sisters, they have a monogistic lens. Mono e mono. What does that mean? Mono e mono. One on one. Mono one. Not mono the sickness, but mono as a singular. Monogistic dynamic. Meaning that God and God alone acts in the process of salvation. Only God acts and only God chooses in the process of salvation. We call that a monogistic view. Everybody blessed right now. So human freedom is very, very limited. Human response is very, very limited. God chooses who he wants to choose and doesn't choose who he does not want to choose based on his wisdom and knowledge and sovereignty. And this is where the idea of predestination comes from. Because whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So the, the idea of that is, at least from a, from a reformed point of view, is that God and God alone acts in the process of salvation and only he chooses who will be saved and who will not be saved. And those whom he chooses to be saved will be conformed to the image of his son. How we would understand that, because we have a prior thought behind that thought, is that whoever, whoever responds, and this is an important word, whoever responds to the call of God from heaven, to your human heart, whoever God, he has already decided who you're going to be like. You're going to be like his son Jesus. That's what he's predetermined that you will be like his son. We don't know what he will be like when he appears, but when he appears, we know this, we will be like he is. Because that is what God in his sovereignty has ordained. The scripture also says, God is not willing that anyone should perish. Now, but we have a thought behind that thought, behind that sentence, is that the everyone includes everyone. The you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and the whole world. That's our assumption about the statement. Our countless brothers and sisters says, well, of course, the ones that he has chosen will not be because he's sovereign and he has willed that. They cannot be lost. Are you tracking it all? Because you're looking at me like really blank stares. I don't know if the oxygen has just left the room, or it's like... You're going, huh? Huh? She says, say it in layman's terms. I, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> oh, we have the choice to choose Jesus. Yes. So, so when, 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 when our, our Reformed brothers and sisters, our Reformed brothers and sisters, I want to highlight that, underline that. What, what did you just say? So, so, so only the chosen have the choice to respond back. We would believe every human being has the choice to respond back. Okay, so now I've got to move on. I think we've all got that cleared up now because we've spoken layman terms. 
Okay. Think of what that does to prayer. Think what that does to prayer. You see, we believe, we believe, we take literally, we take seriously. Second Chronicles 7, 14. And what does that say? Wait, 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 you didn't say it loud enough. Say the first word really loud. Keep going. What do we call that if as a matter of speech? It's a conditional phrase. It's a conditional word. It's... We take that if seriously. See, our, our, if you had a monogistic, you, you wouldn't have to take it that seriously because God's going to save who he's going to save and he's going to act on who he wants to act and he's going to do what he wants to do. But we take that relationship seriously so that if we pray, God will do A. If we do not pray, God will do B. And that our prayer really does affect what God does. Now, there's no way a Reformed person can say that. Because God has, He's sovereign. He already knows what He's going to do. All you have to do when you pray is align your prayer up with God's will. Well, what's wrong with that? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. That's a good prayer. That's a good thing to do. Remember, Jesus prayed that very prayer. Not my will, but thine be done. God is not willing that anyone should perish. Is anybody perishing? Well, of course they are. God is not willing that any should perish. So, see, there's two thoughts that go behind that sentence. There's a monogistic and there is a synergistic. God is not willing, well, so that anybody that he chose is not. They're not going to perish. God is not willing that any, so his will will be done. They will not be lost. It doesn't matter who they are, what they've done. If they're chosen, uh, they can be a snake in the grass. But if God's chosen them, because he's sovereign, he can choose. You don't have to ask your permission. We would look at it and go, God is not willing that any should perish. God loves the world so much, he doesn't want anybody to perish or go to hell. But against his will, against his love, against his death, thousands go anyway. Huh? I got my little helper on the front row. Like my little helper in the car. <laughs> That goes something like, why did you park here? You know, I, I've learned to say, I made an executive decision and went with it. <laughs> but there's great, <laughs> there's great love. It's set in love. Mutual love. All right, I got to move on. Okay, so now... Okay, now all these concepts I've given to you, they are in a, they're supposed to be anyway, in a systematic, one following the other kind of thought process that leads to a conclusion, that goes somewhere, that has a result. And so our prayers really matter in a synergistic worldview. 
God will respond and save. Look at the, the illustration of Abraham. God, I'm going to destroy Lot. I mean, I'm going to destroy Sodom. So my, 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 my nephew lives there. You can't do that. Okay. Well, well, God, I'll tell you what. If, you, if I find 100 good people there, will you not destroy the city? Well, yeah. But Abraham already knew there wasn't 100 good people there. So he said, well, okay, okay. God. Well, I appreciate that. Now I'm obviously being facetious. But what if, what if I could find 50? Well, okay, all right. I'll, if you can find 50, I'll, I'll not destroy it. Well, what, what if there's not 50? So there's this real give and take between God and, and Abraham, the friend of God. He says, well, what, what, let me not have these, exact years, these numbers exactly the right ones that they said. So, well, God, maybe if there's not, what if there's just 10? Well, that's pushing it, Abraham, but if you can find 10... I won't destroy it. Now, was God just teasing him? Just kidding with him? Like, I know where you're going, so when you get there, then I'll agree with you. That's, that's how our monogistic person would process that. A synergistic person would go, God is really having a real conversation that really has meaning and really matters. What if I can only find one? Well, go tell Lot to get out because I'm getting ready to destroy the city. So we, that's, we don't believe that's a make-believe conversation or just a fictitious conversation, but a real conversation between a man and his God. If you call to me, I will answer. The implication of that is, if you don't call, you're not going to get an answer. That's serious stuff. See how much serious it takes the relationship? It takes it seriously, which I think is the way God would want it. So it matters about history. It matters about prayer. Now I'm going to give you one that's really controversial. This will really get under some of you's crawl. I know it will, but just you got to love me anyway. Okay? It matters about history. Because if you have a monogistic understanding of history, like it's God and God alone and God's sovereignty, and all of that's true. It's just how you understand those words. Are they monogistic? With a, with a hyper understanding of, of God's sovereignty, or is it more synergistic with an understanding that God has made a real relational dynamic tension between the man and his God? So, if it has to do with history, a monogistic person would look at history and say, Well, what God already knows history. And we would say, well, yeah, he does. He's God. He lives outside of time. He knows what history is. He knows the end from the beginning. And it's laid out like a Rubik's Cube. And all you have to do, and I've never mastered a Rubik's Cube. I get about five turns. I go, I'm not spending time on that. We're a more stubborn person or somebody else person like, I don't care if it takes all day. I'm going to turn this thing. And they'll get there. I don't have the patience for that. If we could just get the Rubik's Cube lined up, then we would know how it's going to unfold. Because God's already A, B, C, D, E, F, G. If you just get A and B and C and D and G, just figure it out. You'll know what God's going to do. Voila! So we spend hours and hours of time like, okay, what's A? Hmm, must be this. B. B follows A. It just makes sense. But there's a verse for that. It must be B. C. Oh, we're getting so close. 
God has made all this laid out for us. We can figure it out. And we just get to X, Y, and Z, and we kind of know the story. We've got it figured out. We're going to write books about it. And if I could just do that, I could make a lot of money. And people write books like that, make a lot of money. Now, that's not a rock. They were just smarter than me and wrote a book and made a lot of money. Okay, I'm not throwing a rock at them. I'm just saying that's the dynamic of it. Let me get now. The, the thing that's going to irritate you is this. I heard this from the time I was able to understand words and process them and understand what in the world was being said. What happened in 1948? That's exactly right. I was, I was, it was growing. In 1948, Israel became a nation. Now, y'all all know that, right? Well, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, and there's this very moment, I, I'm, I can't call the verse, but he has this story in there about learn the parable of the fig tree. When the fig tree puts forth new buds and the branch is tender, you know that the figs are not far away. So it is when you see the fig tree blossom, you know that the end is near. Well, theologians got together, Bible study experts got together and said, hmm, over here in book so-and-so, in chapter so-and-so, in verse so-and-so, Israel is called a fig tree. And that happened two or three times. So obviously, Israel in the parable is Israel. So, with some hindsight and some history, are you getting uncomfortable yet? With some hindsight and some history, we go, Israel became a nation in 1948. And Jesus said, and this generation will not pass away until the things I've just described have been fulfilled. Hmm. What does the Bible say about a generation? See, we're putting the A, B, C, D. We're putting it together. We're figuring it out. A generation, well, the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And God said, this generation is not going to go into the promised land. So it must be 40 years. So from 1948 till 19, what? 1988. Oh, my goodness. The United States was a buzz. And I was right there with everybody else. With a buzz. Because... I had been taught that all my life. When Israel becomes a nation, that generation, whoever sees that, they will not pass away. That generation will not pass until the end comes. So we were writing books. I was preaching sermons, get ready. Jesus is coming back probably this year. Serious, I was serious as a heart attack. And 1988 passed, and Jesus didn't come back. I went, <clears throat> We've got to rethink that. We, had, we did something wrong, okay? So a generation uh, was not 40 years. We had that messed up somehow. It wasn't 40 years. It, it must have been, it must have been uh, not 40 years, but maybe 70 years. So we waited a few more years until 2018. 80 years had now passed. And 1918 went by. Dagnatic. 
That's a sanctified word. Jesus is not following our script. 1918 passed. There must be something wrong with our calculation. It must be 100 years. So you have to live till 2048, you guys. Till 2048 will be 100 years. I don't know why we do this. Well, I do, because we follow a monogistic kind of understanding about history, not a synergistic kind of understanding about history. That you and my life matter. And God takes an account of the things in the world based on us. He has an ultimate plan, and his plan will not be thwarted. Jesus is coming back, whether it's Biden or Trump. Hello, so I'm make sure you're still firing up there. Jesus is coming back. He, he's, not, he's not contingent on any of that. Neither Russia nor China nor the United States or anybody else. He is king of kings and lord of lords, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. But a synergistic view of history says, you know, God was going to destroy Nineveh. I'm going to send a preacher over there, and you tell them they better repent because I'm getting ready to destroy them. Well, he called Jonah. And Jonah said, God, now I'm paraphrasing, you don't know what you're talking about. Don't tell God that. You, you, you must have meant the next town over, not Nineveh. Nineveh is the most wicked town and city I know of, and I am not going there. And don't tell God that either. So I'm going to go the other way, and you're not going to find me. <laughs> he who sits in heaven laughs. Literally says that. And has them to scorn. The Lord will drive them to derision. So Jonah went the other way. You know the story. I can't believe the point. God made a big fish, and a big storm came up. They, he said, throw me overboard. Everything will go okay. How did he know that? Because God acts in response to us. So when he came out of the fish, he said, okay, God, you win, I lose. What you want me to do? Go to Nineveh. Like I told you, you didn't have to go. You can, I tell my kids, you can learn the hard way or you can just go do it. That'll preach. You can learn the hard way or you can just go do it. So he goes and preaches. Well, what do those wicked people do? And God kills them anyway. No, he didn't. Because they responded. The course of history was different. This is a synergistic understanding of how history works. So if, and, and I can't believe it, but I think I made the point. Okay, so one more point. Can you, I, I, I don't know what time it is, and I guarantee you, you'll survive. I got one more point. The, the, the food, I hope it's not on high. <laughs> but it's my last point. Okay, so this matters, and the reason this matters, and, and one, point that, one point that makes the point, and there are counterpoints to all of these, I'm just trying to show you a Western view, is time. Time. History and time. So a monergistic tends to follow a chronological view of time. It comes from the word chronos, or order, or particular steps. Chronological, you get the calendar from it. So if we can just figure out the calendar, we'll know what's going to happen.
But Wesleyans tend to follow a different kind of time. And it's called Kairos. Kairos time. And this has more to do with the fulfillment of the thing. And what I mean by that is, by a quick illustration, is I have a fig tree in the back of my yard, speaking of figs. And, and about every other year, they have a really good, really good uh, harvest. And uh, I'll, I'll watch the tree. I'm not sure when I can start picking figs. Now, I'll watch it, and I'll pay attention. I'll look at the fruit. And I'll, go, I'll even go out to the fig tree, and I'll take a hold of one of them, and I'll kind of squeeze it, you know, and it's not ready. But depending on the heat of the season, the water of the season, which side of the tree is facing the sun, and, a vari- and some other variables, there's a time when the fig is ready to pick. The scriptures put it this way, in the fullness of kairos, in the fullness of time, not on you know, March the 23rd of, of 1932, not, not, not that kind of time. It, it's this kind of time. I'm playing, and I'm 12 years old, and I want to keep playing cowboys and Indians. I'm out in the backyard, and my mama says, y'all come in. I learned when she first said that, I generally didn't have to come in. Now, she, she wanted me to come in. But I knew when. It wasn't that when. Even that would have been a correct when. And would everybody have been happier. But I, I learned to recognize a certain tone. It was like, now! <laughs> I knew when. In the fullness of time. Here's the deal. I'm, I'm, I'm done. Someday, God in his sovereign, holy love is going to say, it's enough. Time. Time. And Jesus said, there's no sign going to be given. He said that plain as day. There's no sign going to be given. The sign is when he shows up. Seriously, that's, that's the sign. We'll I have a few more things to say, but I've got to wrap this up. Time is when Jesus splits the eastern sky and a trumpet blows and it translates time's up. Jesus, I'm going to say this to you because you do not know. I don't know. The angels of heaven don't know. I don't know why we keep thinking we know. Time's up. Be ready. Be watching. Because you do not know what hour the Son of Man will come. Blessed is that servant who is ready when his master shows up. Are you ready? Are you ready? You say, well, it'd probably be another hundred years based on what you just said. Thou fool. This night, time's up. Watch and be ready 
because no man knows the day nor the hour whether Jesus splits the sky or an angel of the Lord visits your car or your bedroom or your office and goes, time's up. Let's go. Be ready. We used to sing a song, Are You Ready? Are you ready for that day to come? Let's just bow our heads. In the end, it doesn't matter whether you're monogistic or synergistic in your thinking. It's just a way to process the thoughts. What matters is Jesus Lord and are you ready? I want to give you a chance right now today to say, Jesus, maybe I kind of played fast and loose with you and haven't really given you a lot of attention, but I want to be ready. I want my garments white. I want oil in my lamp. I want to be ready. I want my sins forgiven. Today, Lord, I'm praying. And because you love me, you hear me. And you said that you would forgive my sins. Your apostle John said, if we have sin, if we will confess it, that he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This very day, Lord, we receive you as Lord of our life. Not only Savior, but Lord. So that when you do come, whether we're taken by death or whether we are taken by the appearance of Jesus in the sky, we'll be ready. into my heart. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today. Come in to stay. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that you invite me to come to you, O Lamb of God, I come. Redeem me, adopt me, make me one of your own. My life is yours. Jesus' name. Would you stand with me, please? Amen. Now the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and overwhelm you with his peace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us at Central Church today. If you'd like to get involved, please visit us at centralnazarene.org.